Actually, I don't know how you can't know about intelligent squares. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> You're listening to Shade, the podcast where I chat to creatives and activists who challenge ideas on race at a time when identity politics is at the forefront of our cultural landscapes. I'm Lou Menser, writer and photographer, and I've always wondered why people create the work that they do. Intelligence Squared has established itself as the leading forum for live, agenda-setting debates, talks and discussions around the world. Now this week I chat with Farah Jasset, Head of Editorial Innovation and Digital. We talk about how she started debating back at uni, where she got the opportunity to interview Jesse Jackson, age 19. We talk about how Intelligence Squared has recently partnered with the New York Times and how they launched a huge event to celebrate that partnership where the journalists who broke the Harvey Weinstein story were heading the discussion. Influencer panels, these are not. What really resonated most with me about this episode was that no matter where we are from or how we are educated, we all need a platform in which to share ideas, to engage with others, not only those who mirror our own views, but with those who also challenge them. So Intelligence Squared is one of the leading platforms for live discussion and debate in London. Um, We hold events in central London for usually up to a thousand people and they're often debates. So we'll have um, the traditional Oxford style format where you have two people on either side of the motion um, debating against each other and then discussing with the audience. We also have lots of sort of big in conversations. So we're lucky um, that our brand is quite well known. So we're able to get speakers such as Malala, Cheryl Sandberg, Mary Beard. Um, we've recently partnered with the New York Times, so they are now our media partner. I saw that. What a fantastic collaboration. Really amazing. And we've launched this new series called The Intelligent Times, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously a great combination of both of our names. And um, the first event was a couple of weeks ago, and it was a really amazing event. It was with the reporters, the New York Times reporters who broke the Harvey Weinstein story, mm-hmm. uh, Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey. Mm-hmm. And them on stage in conversation with some of the sources in that story, mm-hmm. so former assistants of Weinstein um, or former people that worked with him that were abused by him or allegedly ab- abused by him. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had Carrie Gracie Charing, um, who was uh, the BBC presenter that was known for sort of her equal pay uh, battle against the BBC. So it was an amazing lineup and it was the first time actually. I've been at an Intelligence Squared event where there's been a standing ovation from the audience of a thousand people. It's an emotional, I feel, an important story. Um, So we're really lucky to be able to have sort of that sort of access to our speakers. And then what we do is curate events in a way that we think are interesting to um, our audience. So it's all about discussing ideas. It's all about challenging ideas. And it's about people who are at the forefront of leading the discussions in those fields. Mm. What have been your personal successes as the head of editorial and innovation? And can you just tell us a little bit more about what your role involves? Sure. So um, my role is officially head of editorial innovation and digital. And that essentially means that um, I work with other members of the editorial team. Mm. 
it's a very collaborative team so we all sort of specialize in our own areas mine is particularly in the sort of digital sphere so looking at podcasting um because of my background at the bbc and in uh, radio and tv mm-hmm. um, and also in sort of innovating new ways to um curate our content to be able to appeal for different audiences right so um i guess maybe two of um my sort of proudest achievements so far i've only been at the organization for a year mm. has been um a collaboration a partnership that um i've sort of spearheaded with galdem yeah i i really enjoyed that panel it was really great because we had bernardine who um, won the booker prize on the day the night before you know the morning after the night before yes <laughs> it was really brilliant um she was obviously just still reeling from having won it with margaret atwood and um it was just it felt so fresh and we had Diane Abbott which was really amazing because we also thought that was also due to be the day that parliament was back from prorogation initially yeah. before it was deemed to have not been prorogated yes. so there was loads of politics happening at the time we weren't really sure who was going to end up on stage because they'd agreed to come on but then there were <laughs> things going on we're lucky enough that everyone managed to turn up <laughs> it was a perfect storm i was just like how is this being curated that everybody is here on this particular day <laughs> like it was quite amazing in all honesty there was some judgment on whether we thought some people might drop out so we had sort of spoken to other people to be part of it in case and we were just so lucky that everyone managed to turn up and it was just this amazing combination so we had uh, Bernadine Evaristo, Diane Abbott, obviously the first black woman um, to go into parliament and the, the event was called Trailblazers, Women Leading the Way. So it was all about women of colour mm-hmm. who'd managed to succeed and um, be pioneers in their field. Um, we had Corinne Bailey Ray, the singer, mm-hmm. um, who'd flown in that day from New York, which was amazing. Uh, we had Michelle Hussein, the Today programme presenter, um, Yomi Adegoke, who wrote uh, The Black Girl Bible, Slave Your Lane, and um, Ash Saka was chairing. So it was a pretty amazing, formidable panel of women. It was. And I would love to see more like that. What I really like is when you see the panelists taken out of the, the normal or the usual arena in which we're used to seeing them and put together in a new arena. And it definitely changes the dynamic of the discussion. And I loved it the way it was so warm and open hearted and sort of friendly and welcoming. And quite often you don't get that. I don't know what you think, but what I find about panels quite often, they're either one or the other. So I've been to lots of events where, you know, there might be whoever's being interviewed I don't know but I feel like the event is actually turning up because I don't always find the discussion points particularly stimulating and I always just think I just wish it was like you know these panels were like the podcasts that I listen to a bit of personal stories with a bit of um, uh, factual uh, you know history and all of these things I want to hear all of that in one in one go or they're usually inaccessible to me I feel and I just can't quite reach the level which the debate is at because I'm not particularly well versed in that particular area but I felt that that girl dem panel kind of encompassed all of that really beautifully. I'm so pleased to hear that I'm really thrilled because I feel like Intelligence Squared that's what we try and do so our job is um, we don't just put these events on because a lot, a lot of companies are able to maybe put events on, but our sort of, what well, we see our USP is actually editorially curating it in a way that's really engaging and interesting. And it's not just putting people on stage and assuming that magic will happen. 
maybe you think it just happens spontaneously, but it's all crafted in how we brief our uh, presenter, in the mm. sort of questions that we're asking, in the structure of the event, which, you know, a, a perfect event, you don't notice the structure, you don't notice um, all of the scaffolding that is holding it up. It seems like it's just absolutely natural, but yes. it's actually all crafted. And then the natural element is are the speakers and the way they engage with each other. But actually, there's been work going on behind the scenes trying to decide, OK, we'll ask this person this and then we'll ask this person this because they might relate to each other because of X. Yes. And then it does happen. And that's when magic happens on stage with the Trailblazers event. In um, our second second installation, in a sense. So we've got um, one that we've just launched called Trailblazers Letters to My Younger Self on the 4th of Feb. And it's with um, Bonnie Greer, playwright, Eniola Aluko, the footballer, mm. and Chappie Corsandi, the comedian, and chaired by Clara Ampho, the BBC Radio 1. Yeah, yeah. Good lineup. Yeah, so we're hoping that one will be them actually. Um, we're going to get them to write letters um, specifically for the event to their younger selves. Um, and so, so it's a bit of advice and, a, you know, quite a warm atmosphere like the last one. Their younger self, there must have been some inkling that this is where their passion lied. So it, with debate or communication or observing or listening. And I don't think I've interviewed anyone yet. They have They have said, you know, I'm doing this. This is a sort of a, a happy mistake that I'm doing this job. But actually, when I look at it now, I realise that all of the threads were there from my younger self up until now. I was just sort of finding my way to it. And I'm just interested to know when did your interest in communications begin and how did you nurture that interest through to the role that you are in now? It's interesting that you say that a lot of people say it was a sort of happy mistake because I feel that really relates to me as well. <laughs> All the threads are sort of there, but yeah. I would never have realised, you know, when I was 16 or 18 going to university, I, I would never have imagined this would be my job now or that I had worked at the BBC. I mean, it, it felt out of reach. Um, but I was looking back, it actually all slots into place. Perhaps at university, um, my interest in sort of storytelling and journalism began. I used to do a bit of dabbling in the university newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think was deputy interviews editor or some sort of position I managed to get where I managed to interview people that came to the university on various things. And that was amazing because I think perhaps one of the most significant ones was when Reverend Jesse Jackson came to the university and I was able to interview him and for me it was just amazing to have this civil rights leader who's I'm sitting with in front of me I'm able to speak to I mean it's so strange coming out of school and being able to you know coming out of you know sixth form going to university and then having such an amazing opportunity that was so amazing I was with a, um, a colleague of mine at uni and it was just so much fun so I think that's where sort of my interest in interviewing and storytelling, in a sense, came from. But I was always interested in the idea of debate and discussion. And I have to give credit, actually, to my history teacher at school, who encouraged me to go into the school debating society. Um, and I think that he saw something and that encouragement from him allowed me to flourish in terms of debating so then I really got into debating and discussing different ideas and that's where my interest in sort of communication from a public speaking perspective came from um, and then it sort of all tied together when I 
left university, I studied history at university and I was interested in ideas. Um, and actually I was torn between two paths. I was either going to go down the academic route and I'd applied to do a master's and got a place to do one um, or go down sort of the journalism route. And then I was lucky enough to get a place um, on the BBC training scheme for production. So I turned down the uh, master's offer and I always thought I'd go back to it. And I went I went down the, the training route and I did two years of training at the BBC across TV and radio um, and online. And then I managed to get a job with the BBC. Wow. OK. And that was a seminal moment with Jesse Jackson. I mean, that's life defining, isn't it? That's just such an interesting history and a path that, that led you to where you are. Those moments happened in in the BBC as well, just moments of real privilege where you're able to speak to someone who shaped history and you feel really humbled. And we, we talked a little bit earlier about uh, panels and debates and, and discussions being more inclusive. Um, and it strikes me that Intelligence Squared is moving towards that in terms of its guest speakers and the ideas that are being discussed. But sometimes, because I didn't have a traditional sort of education, I've just felt my way to where I am now. I've not been trained in any, any of this. So sometimes I feel somewhat on the uneducated outside looking in, like perhaps it's not my position to be listening to or engaging with these debates. As I've grown up, I realise that that's not true at all. But that's taken many years to get to that point. Um, I didn't come from a family where politics or culture was were discussed um, over the dinner table. That for some probably more traditionally educated families, I used to imagine that they would have great intense debates over the dinner table about what was going on in the world. And it was one of my biggest wishes that I could have a dinner table set up like that. Um, and now I've created one myself at home. So with my daughter and my partner, we, we do discuss what's going on. But they're very contrasting scenarios. People who think that these kind of debates that sort of include the, the policy makers and decision makers, they feel that these situations aren't for them to be involved in um, and that's a lot to do with background and, and how you grow up. My personal road to political consciousness um, insofar as I've achieved anything like that came from my young adult years. I was kind of looking for intense debate and in, engaging debate about what was going on in the world and I felt like it was something that I really needed and I found that with smaller politicised groups as I grew up and as I grew into my identity and some of my family members were Rastafarians and, you know, when they got together, they would have very intense political discussions. And that was absolutely thrilling to me. It was the first time that I was involved in anything like that. And their ideas would focus around capitalism and repatriation. And then I moved on to going to, to college to study PR and fashion. And there was a little bit of debate there. But all of these conversations existed within echo chambers. Anti-establishment rhetoric was the norm. And in retrospect, for all of their idealism, they were perhaps unavoidably rather inward looking. And I have a few questions and thoughts when I look back at this time and these kind of debates that happen within certain groups of people and I wonder how that you would suggest engaging P 
people across such divides, so people who are very set um, in their circles of debate, how do we get these different groups talking and how can we have more of an understanding of each other? We see the output of those sort of inward-looking tribal conversations leading to the issues we have with the Brexit referendum and Trump and how politics is getting more and more polarised and Mm. tribal and people are less and less willing to speak to people on the other side. Mm. I don't have an answer for that. Um, um, People that are dealing with all these issues in the economy and in society and in identity politics, but maybe might not speak the language of policymakers. And because policymakers aren't speaking in their language, they feel they are not able to listen to those conversations. So they are being sort of frozen out by the language um, that is inaccessible, I think, from Mm. government figures. Our role is to try as, you know, journalists to try and represent their views in conversations that we have and allow them to maybe learn from the conversations that we are putting on in an accessible way. Um, I think podcasting is an amazing arena that can try and democratise conversations in a way that wasn't possible before, where people can just download things for free on their phone and just listen to things. You know, there's no barrier of access Mm. um, that way that everyone else has a phone. Maybe, you know, going to events is still um, prohibitively expensive for certain families, for certain people that live in certain parts of the country. But podcasts and the internet are really sort of accessible way of accessing information. I think that our role is to try and market that information to those people so they realize that it's for them Uh, and maybe you know maybe a route out of those echo chambers is to represent their views in a debate but then to have it as a debate so they realize there are other perspectives and they can hear from those other perspectives Mm -hmm. um so so they don't feel left out of the conversation have someone very articulate maybe from their tribe or Mm -hmm. their that they respect and would follow maybe on Twitter or on YouTube and see them in part of a conversation with someone else with maybe a totally opposite view that they might go into thinking, oh, I'm on, on the side of my, my person. But maybe if they go in with a bit of an open mind, they'll think, oh, this is really interesting. And both people have sort of given way slightly on certain issues. That's what people like Akala is, is doing so brilliantly. He talks about such complex themes and makes them very accessible. He reaches out and becomes parts of environments and discussions that his community would previously think that they were did not have access to. And through him, they are getting access. And I think it's people like that that are, are really helping to to change and to, to reduce the divide. I think Afwa Hirsch is another, being able to engage with sort of the traditional policymakers, but bringing her community in a sense and representing the voices of that community. I interviewed uh, for last week's episode the president of the Women's March Youth Group. Oh yeah. She she was amazing and we talked a lot about the importance of, of young people being involved in debates because it gives them the appetite and it gives them the idea that that they do have a position that's valuable within society because they're being included. I wondered if you had any suggestions to parents or educators who find it difficult to know how to support children in in their capacity to to tackle complex themes. I was lucky enough to have parents when I was growing up that encouraged me to question things and engaged with me and um, 
my dad in particular would speak to me about everything even if I wouldn't completely really understand it mm. uh, it's sort of he does this with um, his granddaughter now who's only three years old she seems to be listening intently anyway so I don't know <laughs> engaging from it um one of the things I would recommend is I worked at Newsround the CBBC program in Salford um, a few years ago and Newsround is one of the places I genuinely believe is one of the, the you know most amazing parts of the BBC and what the license fee pays for. Mm. It's the only programme dedicated to children and and trying to explain news to them. Mm. So aimed sort of, you know, seven to 12 year olds. Um, and I remember we used to have to try and think of ways to explain like hurricanes or ISIS, you know, to, mm. a, to a child of that age, which they are picking up from grown-ups around them or from random things they're seeing on the news channel when their parents are flicking through. And it is very scary. I think that's one resource I would really recommend. I feel that there are an ama- amazing group of people that are trying to sort of um, explain news in an accessible way to children. The other way, the only thing I would say as sort of educators, maybe it's about humanising the conversation because... Yeah. These children will be growing, are growing up now in such a politicised environment that, as we spoke about before, people are very tribal in their thinking and their groups. You can very easily think the people that voted this way are bad people. Um, they're, they're racist people all together as a block, not um, understanding the reasoning behind why people voted a certain way or why people are um, voting for a certain political party and branding all people from that political party to be a certain type. Um, that's, I think, a very dangerous language to be using. We might strongly disagree um, with a person's politics um, as long as they're not, you know, veering into, uh, you know, racism and, and discrimination. Um, but we have to humanise, we have to humanise why, the, and even if they are veering into things like racism and discrimination, we need to understand the worries they have and then tackle them head on. Um, mm think it's important to look at the causes of why people think a certain way and we can explain that to kids just saying you know this person is worried about their job because 10 years ago they were able to have a stable job and now they're not and so they're a bit worried that these other people are taking them but actually the situation is that's not happening and this is you know just try and explain a little bit more about why they're worried yeah. and why it's not true but they think that and therefore how we have to tackle it. I think maybe humanising could go a small way in trying to educate our children politically. And finally, I hope you don't mind, actually, but I'd like to end on a personal note because this is something that I I really enjoy, this part of the podcast, asking my guests when you're feeling the need to retreat for downtime, especially in the demanding job that you have, I'd love to hear what creative inspirations you find that you return to to give you that energy again to go back and to do the work that you do in all honesty the thing that I return to most is my family and um my spirituality my faith I feel that they both ground me and center me so those are the things that I would return to in terms of you know when things might get overwhelming Mm -hmm. uh, they bring me comfort and and solace and peace I'm lucky enough that in my job I'm always sort of surrounded by new books but so so I'm always reading new books a book I do go back to actually is Alif Shafak's The 40 Rules of Love I really do love that book um I don't know why I think it was I think I discovered it when I was much younger and it was the first book I'd sort of come across that was a fiction but about like a Muslim character yes. history and it was just 
so new to me. I was like, wow, this is amazing. I didn't know that this could happen. You know, because you don't see yourself or your culture represented in fiction or represented in, you know, the media, which is also, you know, part of my journey into that. So when you find those bits, especially when you're younger, they have sort of an, an unusual impact on you because mm. you can be close to them. Similarly with Mallory Blackman's books. Yes. Noughts and Crosses. Um, and sometimes I do go back to those childhood books. Zadie Smith kind of always offered that for me, you know, her talking about her mixed heritage and all of the issues that come with that growing up in, in North London. That was the first time that I saw myself really in literature. So um, it's so interesting. But what a delicious position that you're in. One thing I miss about being in the office is the access to some wonderful um, things, literature and, and people. And, you know, so um, but I get to do it from talking to you guys on here. So that's fantastic.